From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, I'm Tom Hudson. It has been eight days now since Hurricane Irma first made landfall with Florida in the Keys. The storm was a Category 4 hurricane, and it would make a second landfall at Marco Island in southwest Florida as the winds and rain engulfed the entire peninsula. Irma set off one of the largest evacuation efforts in U.S. history, certainly the largest ever in Florida, with 6.5 million people told to get out of their homes. One out of every three Floridians were under evacuation orders. Some did, some didn't, or couldn't. It was the strongest hurricane to hit the state in 12 years. Irma was almost a whole state storm. Only parts of the Florida panhandle were left outside its reach. And while its path through the Sunshine State was not as destructive as feared, it left behind crippled power grids, flooding, questions about the ability for Florida to effectively evacuate, worries about how to protect the most vulnerable residents, and death. Florida's public radio stations continue reporting on Irma for their communities. Today, we bring together some of that reporting to hear what happened, the recovery efforts, and what can we learn from Irma. We begin where the storm began in Florida, in the Keys. Nancy Klingener reports from Key West. As Irma was coming at the Keys, I actually managed to get a couple hours of sleep. This was surprising since the wind was already rattling the air vents in the room where I was settled on an air mattress with my husband and our dog, but essential because I had not slept at all the night before. I woke up around 3.30, went on the radio, and started reorganizing my stuff. Again. The day before, I'd reduced my life to four bags. Now, it was down to one, the one bag I could take into the stairwell in case the windows blew out. We still had cell service somehow, so we watched as Irma's eye aimed at the keys just to the east of us. At least that put us on the less dirty side of the storm. And it was coming in at low tide, another blessing. The building felt solid. You could feel it buffet from the gusts, but it wasn't like the sway I've felt in an old wooden conch house in much lesser winds. In late morning, after the worst had passed, we looked around. The water never reached us in Old Town Key West. There were some big trees down, but most buildings that hadn't been hit by one of them looked okay. We knew Irma's eye had passed to our east, but didn't know which areas were worst hit. Within a day or two, we found out. It was the lower keys. That's where Anthony Attilio was. I met Attilio on Thursday on Big Pine Key, about 30 miles east of Key West. He was at work at the Winn-Dixie. I was in a trailer at the end of Avenue C. And what happened? <laughs> trailer blew apart around 6 in the morning. We lost one wall, then the roof, and the other wall. Me and my roommate were hanging on to a pole outside, said our goodbyes, because we didn't think we were going to make it. But we did, and we came up here. Attilio knew some of his co-workers were spending the storm inside the Winn-Dixie. He waited through the receding storm surge and made it to the store. He's been working there nonstop ever since. Big Pine took the brunt of Irma. I'm from here, my family's from here. I'm a lifelong resident and uh, it was just shock and sad to see everything. Everything that I know growing up here is gone. Nothing looks the same and never will. And it's, it's really upsetting. But we'll rebuild, we're conks, we're tough, we'll rebuild, everything will be okay. Some of the biggest challenges right after the storm were navigation and communication. Navigation because almost every street was blocked by trees or big branches. A lot of them had lines of some kind drooped across, low enough to catch on your car or even your nose. Communication because everyone wanted to let our loved ones know we were alive, and of course power and cell service were knocked out. 
On Sunday, I got a quick phone call through to an editor in Miami, thanks to a friend with a satellite modem. We made it through to our house and found it unscathed, though our yard was an impenetrable tangle of fishtail palms and mahogany branches. A week later, it still is. We just removed enough to give us access and figured the rest can wait until we have 911 and better medical services. So yeah, the medical services. In the days after the storm, that felt like the sketchiest and scariest part of our situation. All of us who stayed did so at our own risk. Communications were down, so there was no way to summon help. People who needed medical assistance showed up in person at the fire stations. Some of us remembered about landlines, true landlines, not the kind installed now that need internet service to work. A friend has a small hotel that was in really good shape after the storm. And Sunday evening, we figured out that they had a fax line we could use to call out. That was my first connection to report back to the mainland. Getting around is still an issue. I'm always careful riding my bike around the island, but now I'm riding super defensively. I made my priorities personal safety, then journalism. That means staying hydrated, avoiding getting overheated, remembering to eat on a regular basis. Power returned for some of us amazingly fast. We got ours on Thursday, but water has been a problem in the lower keys with a boil water notice, and in Key West at least, a couple hours during the day when we can shower and flush toilets. For some people, that initial period was just too much. When my husband and I were heading up to Big Pine Key on Thursday, we passed two women walking along the overseas highway on Big Coppet Key. There's no, no other way out. No way out, so we're gonna walk. <laughs> we pulled over and met Stacy Young and Cherie Pruitt. They were walking to the mainland from Key West. Even in good conditions, that's a three-hour drive. Right now, there's still no lights, no power. It is coming on little by little, but water comes on twice a day. I can't do that. I have too many health problems to stay there, and it's too hot. Can't come out after it gets dark. So, no, I'll be back when it's put back together. Young and Pruitt each had a rolling case, one for water and food, one for clothes. Young had her medications for asthma, high blood pressure, and a bad knee. She had a bike light on her cane, and she was carrying a bag with her Yorkshire Terrier, Gucci. We gave them a ride to Big Pine Key. We offered to drop them at the station where the National Guard was giving out food and water, but they wanted to head up the road. Thank you. All right, take Bye-bye. care. Be careful. We last saw them rolling their cases toward the Spanish Harbor Bridge, which goes from Big Pine Key towards Marathon. We were hoping other people would give them rides along the way. I emailed Young to see if they made it out okay, but as of Sunday afternoon, had not heard from her. I'm Nancy Klingener in Key West. Hurricanes expose weaknesses, and one of those vulnerabilities with tragic consequences is emergency electricity at nursing homes. Eight elderly residents at a facility in Hollywood died Wednesday, three days after Irma hit South Florida. A criminal investigation has begun, and Governor Rick Scott has ordered all assisted living facilities and nursing homes now to have generators and fuel to power air conditioners for at least four days. The tragedy has brought focus again on ensuring nursing homes and other care facilities have power after the storms. Here's Kate Stein in Miami. After major storms like Irma, utility companies have a priority list for who gets power back. First up, critical infrastructure, like hospitals, emergency operations centers, some correctional facilities, and some nursing homes. The rehabilitation center at Hollywood Hills was not classified as critical infrastructure. Determining priorities for restoration is something that's done in advance of hurricane season in partnership with communities. With communities, says Brian Garner. 
He's with Florida Power and Light, the nursing home's power provider. Garner and Broward County Mayor Barbara Sharif say the nursing home was in a second tier of infrastructure, behind critical, but ahead of residential homes. It doesn't matter what tier they sell in an FPL, the administrators, the, the owners of that facility, and the people that were present taking care of those patients that should have reacted in the appropriate manner. After they lost power, staff at the facility filed a service request to FPNL. Broward emergency officials say they got that request upgraded to a mission-critical status. Nursing home administrators did not respond to an interview request, but a spokesman provided a timeline of events in which the administrators say they were told last Monday FPNL was on the way, and told that again on Tuesday after the air conditioning still hadn't been restored. They're to call 911 if they can't help those patients. The center is across from a hospital that had power. The spokesman said nursing home administrators requested and received spot coolers from the hospital on Tuesday. The timeline says they first contacted emergency responders on Wednesday morning when patients had trouble breathing and heart problems. Current state regulations require nursing homes to have alternate forms of power, but that could be battery-operated fans instead of air conditioning. I'm Kate Stein in Miami. Deaths at the Rehabilitation Center of Hollywood Hills have brought renewed calls for state legislative action, even as new federal rules for backup power and air conditioning at nursing homes are set to begin this fall. Here's Abe Abaraya from WMFE in Orlando. It's the middle of the day in DeLand, a city between Orlando and Daytona Beach. Temperatures today are in the 90s. At the Good Samaritan Society, Florida Lutheran Retirement Community, the doors are wide open. You can hear the hum of a generator that provides emergency power, but it isn't big enough to run the air conditioning. 92-year-old Mary Mosley is standing at the front desk, chatting with the staff and going through old photos. She's found one of her back in Michigan. She's posing with a snowman. This is snow. This is where you live for the snow days. It's been three days without AC at this facility, where residents live in apartments, assisted living, or one of the 60 nursing home beds. But Mosley, who lives in her own apartment, isn't complaining. If you don't have something, they're there for you. They're very good. So you've been able to get outside, kind of cool off, and get some breeze, that kind of thing? (laughs) That's about all you can do here, get cooled off. (laughs) Cooling off without power will get easier in the future. Right now, federal rules require nursing homes have backup power to run the fire suppression system, elevators, and emergency lights. If patients are on dialysis or a ventilator, that equipment must have emergency power. Eric Cody is with Powered for Patients, a nonprofit that creates better emergency power system plans for healthcare facilities. He says air conditioning is not on the list of systems that are required for emergency power. However, this November, uh, that is all going to change. New federal regulations are going to kick in that will require hospitals, nursing homes, and long-term care facilities to have a form of alternative energy source for air conditioning. On the state level, there are 84,000 nursing home beds. I just appalled that we're still having these conversations. That's Brian Lee, executive director of Families for Better Care, which advocates for nursing home residents. Post all the four hurricanes, post Katrina, post Harvey, and we're still having these problems. And we can't get this figured out. Will this stir some action at the legislature? Well, by gosh, I hope it does. State law already requires that nursing homes have transfer agreements with other facilities, but it's hard to keep those agreements when 65% of the state was without power after the storm. Rick Morgan is the administrator of the Good Samaritan Nursing Home in DeLand. We have agreements, but for example, we have agreements with some of the facilities um, where they were looking at evacuating, but we have a hard time accepting them when we don't have power yet. Morgan opted to change their situation. 
They spent $30,000 to get a generator brought in big enough to power the air conditioning in the building with the nursing home. Okay, flip the switch to manual. Out back behind the Deland nursing home, one of the directors yep. fires up a generator the size of a semi-trailer. <laughs> the rented generator will stay through hurricane season. Next year, the nursing home plans a more permanent solution. I'm Abe Abariah in Orlando. Still to come, a ping-pong evacuation and how not all public schools are built to be shelters from storms. This is After Hurricane Irma from Florida Public Radio. From Florida Public Radio and WLRN in Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. This is After Hurricane Irma. Thanks for listening. Hurricanes are a part of the lifestyle in Florida. Stuck out on the peninsula into the warm waters of the Atlantic, we are a frequent destination for the storms rolling across the ocean from Africa this time of year. Names like Wilma, Rita, Dennis, Charlie, Andrew from this generation have been retired after they hit our state. From generations past, Betsy and Donna, Cleo and Dora are among those that will never have another storm named after them because of the damage they left behind here. And before storms even had names, there was the Labor Day storm of 1935 that knocked out the railroad to Key West, the Okeechobee hurricane that killed more than 1,000 people when Lake Okeechobee flooded, the 1926 Miami Beach storm that plunged South Florida into the Great Depression before the rest of the country. But Florida's proneness to storms has not prevented our population to swell. Florida is the third most populous state with millions of new residents jammed onto the peninsula living and working in the paths of storms. Floridians fled to other parts of the state and even the southeast as Hurricane Irma approached last week. But many of them ended up in the storm's eventual path instead. That's not an uncommon occurrence. And WLRN's Tim Paget reports it's causing Florida residents and officials to reconsider our hurricane evacuation strategy. Growing up in Miami, Luis Gasitua lived through Hurricane Andrew in 1992, one of the most destructive storms ever to hit South Florida. That's why the Coconut Grove attorney recognized the danger of Hurricane Irma. Irma was even bigger and stronger than Andrew. So when early forecast models this month showed it heading straight for Miami, Gasitua and his family decided to evacuate South Florida. We had actually booked rooms in Orlando. My father, my brother, our children, and uh, our wives and my mother. But then they saw Irma's projected track shift slightly west, sending it not just into South Florida, but also straight up to Orlando. Quite frankly, Orlando doesn't have Miami-Dade County's building codes. They were back to square one, with Irma still locking in on Miami with record-breaking winds. Then an uncle invited them to evacuate to his house in Naples on Florida's southwest coast. They accepted. Surely it would be safe there. Before leaving Miami, they took what could have been a last look at their townhouse in the Grove. We did a little prayer, and, and we walked out emotional because I'm like, well, this place might not be here when we come back, and, and I needed my wife to really accept that. But it turns out Gazitua's fear would be turned 180 degrees. As he and his family moved west away from Miami, so did Irma's track. In fact, both she and they were heading to the same place, Naples, where the storm's eye would actually make landfall on the Florida peninsula. You look out the window and it's like the apocalypse. Massive 30, 50 foot trees falling over. I was getting texts from friends here saying, why are you in Naples? <laughs> it was an apt question. Gasitu and his family made it through Irma okay, but it left them and so many other South Floridians who fled to places Irma really did hit hard with this lesson. There often is no real escape from hurricanes that roam into Florida. The day before Irma arrived, Florida Senator Marco Rubio pondered that dilemma. 
a lot of us know people that left. They left Miami-Dade, they left Broward County, they drove up north. Now all of a sudden they drove right into the center of what might be the direct impact. That happens a lot. In 2004, tens of thousands of Tampa Bay Area residents who thought Hurricane Charlie was headed their way fled east to Orlando. But Orlando ended up being where Charlie did the most damage. Today, given Florida's uncontrolled development and population growth, that kind of exodus also means dangerously jammed highways. That's left Florida officials like Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez more convinced that evacuating closer to home should be the state's emphasis. I asked Jimenez about that last week. The strategy here in Miami-Dade County is that we evacuate in place. Find a place here in Miami-Dade County that you can evacuate to. Yet Miami-Dade usually offers only a dozen shelters during hurricanes. Irma's threat forced Jimenez to open 42, and even those could only receive a fraction of the almost 700,000 residents under mandatory evacuation. So genuine in-place evacuation means having many more bona fide shelters online, and one sturdy enough to withstand storms of Irma's power. Jimenez points out that may not be economically feasible. Luis Gassitua, the Coconut Grove attorney who traveled right into Irma's wrath in Naples, also points to a cultural hurdle. In a state like Florida, where the car is king and we believe it's our right to drive out of any situation, our attitudes about mass sheltering can get tainted. I think there's this stigma to going to a shelter. It's the same stigma with trying to get people to use mass transit. Gassitua says he and other evacuees will probably consider a local shelter for the next hurricane. I think you'd be far more comfortable in a fancy high school gym than sitting in the car for 12 hours for what should be a three-hour drive with children asking, are we there yet? He may be right. Maybe our mindset will change. And maybe when the next storm comes, we'll know if we're there yet. I'm Tim Paget in Miami. During Hurricane Irma, public schools transformed into shelters to house tens of thousands of evacuees. As Jessica Bakeman reports from Tallahassee, there weren't many charter schools open to help, and there's a reason for that. As Hurricane Irma bore down on South Florida, Kevin Youngman and his family sought shelter at Falcon Cove Middle School in Weston. There he found himself in enemy territory. I think it's weird for us because we all went to the rival middle school, to Cuesta Trace. So this is kind of like we're kind of backstabbing our, our roots a little bit. Um, but I guess the quest is backstabbing us because they didn't open up a shelter there. So it's their fault, not ours. More than a decade after Youngman was in middle school, he says his experience in the shelter at his rival school was amazing. His alma mater, four miles away, wasn't one of Broward County's 21 shelters during Irma because it wasn't built to withstand the strongest hurricane force winds. Falcon Cove is what emergency officials call an enhanced hurricane protection area, or hardened for short, the highest level for a hurricane shelter. Most public schools are built specifically for the purpose they served during Irma, to house people in case of disasters. But building hardened shelters is expensive, too expensive, if you ask state lawmakers in Tallahassee. In recent years, the Republican-led state legislature has begun relaxing the more stringent building codes for public schools. Republican Senator Anna Terry Flores represents parts of Miami and the Florida Keys. Last year, Flores sponsored a bill to ease some of the laws. I just think that school districts should have the option to be able to build at a standard that's still safe, still very livable, et cetera, et cetera, but just not incur unnecessary costs. Building cheaper schools isn't lawmakers' only goal. They also want to address complaints about the disparities between traditional public schools and charter schools. 
Charter schools are funded with public dollars but run by private companies. They don't have to follow the same strict rules, including construction codes. That's why you didn't see many charters open their doors to the community during Hurricane Irma. They're typically not built for it. You know, one of the things that we hear all the time when people want to compare traditional public schools and charter schools is, um, you know, there's not a level playing field. And this is an example of where there isn't a level playing field. Some public school administrators have welcomed flexibility from laws they see as overly cumbersome. But they do worry lawmakers could go too far and leave the state without enough hurricane shelters. Building codes matter. That much we know. And when we're investing public dollars into these facilities, the community has an assumption that they're all going to be safe, which is not necessarily the case. Andrea Messina runs the Florida School Boards Association. She says Irma will likely change the conversation. The entire state is talking about the safety of shelters. I don't think this is the right time to talk about loosening standards for those facilities. Public school leaders say it's unfair that charter schools don't have to abide by the same building codes. Lawmakers' response has been to try to lower the bar for traditional public schools. Jaime Torrens is in charge of buildings for the Miami-Dade District. He would rather see charters required to comply with the same building codes as other schools. Especially now, he says, since a controversial new law is forcing districts to share billions in local construction funding with charters for the first time. It would be counterintuitive to want to build a charter school that lasts any less or is less equipped than a public school because you're using now public dollars directly for construction of buildings. The other piece of this then may lead to potentially those schools being used as shelters in the future. Local leaders worry that if more schools are built without hurricane protections, there will be fewer places for families to go when the next storm hits. I'm Jessica Bakeman in Tallahassee. Irma had officials from the Atlantic to the Gulf Coasts rushing to open storm shelters. Hundreds were open with room for hundreds of thousands of evacuees. Some filled up fast, others didn't. These shelters turned into temporary homes with families and neighbors seeking refuge, battling worries about the storm, and boredom. In Broward County, WLRN's Wilson Sayre shared her recording gear with two sisters, Shinoria and Shamaje Davis. What's your first and last name? Shanita Davis. Is you excited about the hurricane? No, no way. But I'm happy to be here. Is he safe here? Yes, yes, it's safe. Do you like it here? Yes, I love it. We came on the emergency bus. The bus was going around in the circle. I hate the bus. We got here at the last minute, so if you need shelter, it's not good to wait till the last minute because we had to go to three shelters and all almost four. We had to wait out there all day. It made all the people in line. And I got off the bus with a lot of people, but because I was the only one who had kids, they let me in the shelter and everybody else had to get back on the bus because they were just full, so it's not good to wait till the last minute. And we couldn't go to the shelter that fast because, because we had to clean up. Do you like the hair cake? No. <laughs> I knew you were going to say I've never that. been through one. I've never been through one. But we did one time. No, I've never been through one. It's just that Matthew came last year, but it skipped us, so we was pretty lucky. Mm -hmm. And I'm not from here. Is you from here? No, 
from Chattanooga, Tennessee. What is you doing out here? Oh, I love the beach and the weather's warm. I don't miss the snow. But got to deal with the hurricanes. But at least we got a shelter to come to for safety. We meet his friends and play hide and seek. We play with the dogs. We, we act like we eat it. I had milk, apple, orange, biscuit. It was nasty because I don't really eat jelly. We colored it. We played with the babies. I don't want nobody to go outside when it's time for a hurricane to come. Okay? You can't play outside. You can't get in your pool when you have a I'm so scared that a hurricane coming. The hurricane just really bad. It's here today because I see all like all the trees shaking in the water. I'm scared. I'm not excited. The hurricane is coming. Everyone needs to be safe. They need to have shutters, have like a concrete roof, like brick roof. But my brother stayed home. I'm really scared of him. He's gonna be in the hurricane. I'm really scared for him. And we build our west, and I'm so scared because of the hurricane. Talk about the hurricane. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe the hurricane go go away. We pray with Jesus. Don't be scared. Everything gonna be alright in the name of the Lord. Hey. Amen. That piece was produced by Wilson Sayre. Shinoria and Shamaje Davis' his brother is fine. They're all back home and have power. You're listening to After Hurricane Irma from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. Residents and visitors to the barrier islands of Pinellas County were asked to evacuate three days before the worst of Irma was to hit the Tampa region. When they were welcomed back a week ago, this is what they found. Audrey Simpson. I'm from Brotiferry, Dundee in Scotland. So we've been here for eight or nine days and we were evacuated on Friday. It was a bit scary when we were in the hotel in uh, Sarasota because when the power did go out in the evening, um, obviously you couldn't use the elevators and I I felt a bit concerned because there was elderly people who couldn't get down the stairs and I felt a bit sorry for the people that were vulnerable, you know, people with young babies as well. There was people in the hotel and poor animals, you know, they were suffering as well. So it was a bit scary from that point of view, but I never felt scared for my life. And we're through the other side now and we'll be back. Uh, Maureen Cox, I live in uh, Paso Grill, St. Pete Beach. And for the storm, I was working at the emergency room in pediatrics at Brandon ER. As the storm starts to come close, everything starts to close down. All your doctor's offices close down. So we had a lot of people come in who had minor things going on, but because of all the stress, they just wanted to be checked out. And I had word that my roof was on and we did not take on water, but no one knew about the electricity. So I came into town and I wasn't sure whether or not I had electricity. Everything was dark, so I wasn't sure. So when I got into the house, I opened up the door and I felt the air conditioner and I was like, yes! Hi, I'm Roger. I live in Paso Grill. The surprising part to me in, in the thought process was that I actually considered not leaving even when the forecast was calling for a direct hit on St. Petersburg, which would have been really stupid. Had the storm surge been as high as potentially predicted, I, of course, I had concerns that my home would no longer exist when I got back. 
Um, I was also really concerned about really high winds and projectiles. Neighbors have solar panels. He had warned me, thinking that they weren't going to withstand the winds. They'd be 53-pound projectiles coming at my windows. So I think we all, we to some extent in this community, dodged a great big bullet. I'm Louise Santopolo. I live in Pasigro Beach. We, along with almost all of our neighbors on our street, decided to evacuate to one of our neighbor's warehouse who happens to sell tuxedos. And we all pulled together with food, with water. By the end of the night, we all dressed up in tuxedos, did a group photo um, at about midnight with no drinking. No, there was no drinking. <laughs> and... Um, in the morning, we ended up using the generator that had four plugs with four coffee pots going nonstop. And our house has power, but the power out here is really spotty. And our neighbors that don't have power are staying in our house, in our apartment above our house. Hi there, my name is Isabel Shaw, and I work at Swim and Play, located in St. Pete Beach, Florida. On my drive from Seminole, there's really no issues. There are a few power outages with lights being out. My one little pet peeve is everyone, when the lights are out, it's a four-way stop. So you need to stop, not just blast through because no one's in the intersection. The big damage to our store, thankfully, was our sign got ripped out of the ceiling. And that was it. Getting things back together is actually a joy because you realize what you almost completely lost and you still have it, so you're ready to go with it again. Everything's still here, so we just are really, really thankful. That was reported and produced by WUSF's Kathy Carter, who visited the barrier islands of Pinellas County a week ago as residents and visitors returned. Polk County took a direct hit from Hurricane Irma. The winds caused widespread damage throughout the county, toppling massive trees onto homes, roads, and power lines. Dwayne Jacobs is a retired air conditioning mechanic who worked for the Polk County School Board for 35 years. WUSF reporter Robin Sussingham found him in front of his home on a cul-de-sac in Lakeland after the storm. Here's what I did. I've been, th- I've been living here for a long, long time. I've been through all the other hurricanes. And when Charlie and Francis and Jean came through, they all came through right here. The eye of the hurricane came right over Polk County. And I was here during all of them. So when, when Irma came around and she went through uh, uh, Key West, I got out my road atlas and I drew a mark from, from Key West up to Lakeland. And so uh, as, as it was progressing up through the straits, I was marking it off about every hour. And it was following that line just as, just as pure as could be. And I was just sitting there waiting, looking at my chart. And then it came up here, and that's when it really got, got it was howling. And then it was coming in big gusts. And you could hear it. I stepped outside for a while. You could hear it. You could hear it when it was coming. Ooh, and the gust would roll over, and everything would just roar. And it was, it was scary. Dwayne Jacobs in Lakeland. Still to come, high waters away from the coastlines and damage to agriculture. This is After Hurricane Irma from Florida Public Radio. From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, this is After Hurricane Irma. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Two of Florida's most important industries will be dealing with the impact of the storm for months, if not years. In the Florida Keys, the tourism industry is responsible for a majority of the jobs and spending, and Irma's destruction comes just months before the traditional high season. For Florida's agriculture, the storm delivered widespread damage from orange groves to sugarcane fields. WGCU's Jessica Mazaros reports from Hendry County in southwest Florida. University of Florida's Agriculture Extension Agent in Hendry County, Gene McAvoy, is driving farm to farm, 
taking notes on what damages Hurricane Irma caused. This was a traffic light hanging down. McAvoy maneuvers around broken traffic lights, knocked down power lines, flooding, and debris. He's helping local growers document the destruction for insurance purposes and federal disaster assistance. He pulls up to Mobley Plant World in LaBelle. They grow baby vegetables for farmers. And they removed the plastic from the greenhouses before the storm wow. hit to try to protect the metal structure. But you can also see, even despite that, some of the structures collapsed. McAvoy talks with the manager of Mobley Plant World, Carol Howard. She says 19 out of 51 greenhouses are destroyed. She thinks a tornado did this. The way the damage is, it's different when it just falls down versus when you've got twisting and turning and everything of the trees as well as the greenhouses. What has the last few days been like for you? I will try to say it nicely, <laughs> but hell because these are people's livelihoods in there and it hurts and we've got employees that are displaced trying to come back and they've run out of money on the side of the road because they can't get gas. She usually has about 50 people working for her, but now she has to get about 75 to rebuild. The agriculture industry did not need this to happen to us. From the previous year that we had as far as um, Bad prices, disease, everything from the previous year to they did not need that this year. McAvoy jots down the damages and then drives on. This is West Coast tomato. They had actually planted 25 or 30 acres of tomatoes and they had laid 525 acres of plastic. Sheets of plastic keep in fertilizer and chemical fumigants. McAvoy says these 525 acres of plastic alone is about a million dollar loss for this farm. All of that's been washed away. Two days ago when I came here, this was a lake. This was totally underwater. And now it kind of looks like a smooth sandy beach now it almost. it looks like the tide went out. Sergio Javier Soto is the general manager of West Coast Tomato. He says he tried using pumps to move the flood water out of his tomato farm, but he says there was nowhere to put it because all the surrounding areas were also flooded. How do you feel today? No, not good. Not good. It made me sad. There's like too many things in my head and like headache, you know, see everything, you know, like and I said a week ago, it looks so nice. And I like, like just destroy everything. Now about 45 of his workers are sweating in the afternoon heat dragging out all of the plastic to throw away and then start over again. McAvoy drives to a couple different citrus groves in Hendry County. We're headed to Martin Mason's Citrus Grove. And Martin is a small farmer. He's got about a 40-acre grove here just west of LaBelle. And we're coming right up on the grove in question here. And you can see trees uprooted here, trees broken off. Tree split. We're looking at orange trees that are about five, six years old. They're about 12 foot high. They have been split in two in some cases. Some have been uprooted. And if you look under the trees, Jessica, 
you can see the majority of the fruit is under the tree and very little left on the tree. Is this a common thing you've been seeing in the last few days? Yes, ma'am. This is exactly what we've been seeing. Probably about, I would say, average 70% of the fruit on the ground. Some cases a little better, you know, maybe 50%. I've seen some places where up to 90% of the fruit is on the ground. But he says this citrus grower is more fortunate than others because he did not get significant flooding. At another grove in Hendry, countless yellow grapefruits float and cluster underneath the citrus trees. Once the fruit is in the water, by FDA Food and Drug Administration rules, it's considered contaminated or adulterated, and it cannot be used for foodstuff even if it was ripe and ready. Some of these grapefruit actually are ripe or close to ripe, and had they not been blown off, would have been salable. But floating fruit is just the immediate loss. McAvoy says there's long-term effects to citrus trees that are flooded for more than 24 hours. The roots start to die, and as they die, different pathogenic fungi like Phytophthora will come in and invade those roots. And once the water is gone, that infection is there, and it's become systemic, and you'll be fighting that basically for years. McAvoy says it's still early to know the total financial loss of agriculture in southwest Florida, but he says he would not be surprised if it exceeded $2 billion. I'm Jessica Mazaros in Hendry County. Irma's legacy is not limited to its high winds. Water is part of its story, too. The storm surge well away from the eye's path meant the worst flooding in northeast Florida in 150 years. WJCT's Jessica Palumbo reports from Jacksonville. Irma toppled trees, damaged property, and knocked out power for more than a quarter million customers in Duval County alone. But what took many by surprise was the historic flooding around the St. Johns River and its tributaries. The St. Johns crashed through streets in what looked like ocean waves and right through homes in historic neighborhoods. Many residents who'd awoken thinking the worst was over as wind died down now faced rising floodwaters. Jacksonville Mayor Lenny Curry told them to stay put and help was on the way. Please put what represents a white flag, anything white, somewhere on your house that can be viewed visibly from outside. We have search and rescue teams uh, ready to deploy. Flipwater Command from Flipwater 3, do you have a job for us? All told, 356 families were rescued by boat or truck in Jacksonville, including me, as NPR News reported. Jessica Palumbo is news director at member station WJCT and thought she had made the right choice staying home. The worst of the storm seemed to have passed. It quickly turned from uh, relief to a lot of fear. The St. John's River was rising and wouldn't stop, compounding her fear. I am nine months pregnant. She had opted to stay put because her hospital was so close, but so was the water, and as it reached her doorstep, she hung a white sheet to alert rescue crews. They got her and 100 of her neighbors to safety. But getting to safety was just the beginning. So I walked in a day later after the water had gone down, thinking I was just going to come back to my house being completely fine. Laura Malden lost childhood mementos from her grandma, who recently passed away. And I immediately just started crying because I just had, I had no idea. I really was shocked. In the same neighborhood, Linda Olsavsky had to break the news to her daughter that her possessions are all gone. FYI, people, plastic tubs don't mean anything because the water will get in them. Because I had everything in plastic tubs, and as you can see, they're all filled with water. And Sherry Crawl, who never thought she needed flood insurance, is dealing with the aftermath of water covering the first floor of her house. 
She says she knew this storm was different as she watched the floods spill over the curb. Once it got where it had never been before in 36 years, I knew I better scurry on upstairs. But I have a two-story house, so I went upstairs and watched it come up. About 40 minutes south of Jacksonville, many business owners in the tourist hotspot of St. Augustine don't know when they'll be able to welcome customers again. Like the usually bustling night spot Dos Gatos, completely gutted after being inundated with water. Yeah, mainly we're just dealing now, we're trying to get all the mold out. Manager Quentin Burke says the bar will reopen as quickly as crews can work. Uh, we've had a few companies come in who professionally did the floor. We have heating lamps in the walls now just to try and soak up all the moisture. And in neighboring Clay County, hundreds of homeowners are still displaced after Black Creek crested at 28 and a half feet, the highest level in recorded history. I'm Jessica Palumbo in Jacksonville. Jessica is doing fine and is due soon. Away from the storm surge flooding, Irma dumped trillions of gallons of rain on Florida, swelling inland rivers, sending many over their banks even as the storm threat passed and summer just now beginning to drop below flood stage. WUSF's Steve Newborn visited the Alafaya River in Hillsborough County last week. Nancy Chadwick gazed at the water and mud separating her from her daughter's home on Rose Street, shook her head, and said she'd have to come back to check on her later. It was impassable. Chadwick's used to this scene. She lived across the Alafaya River on Josie Lane for 28 years. I've been through this too many times, and I moved the hell out. <laughs> Chadwick says Hillsborough County bought her land and returned it to its natural role as a floodplain. She now lives far from the fickle Alafaya in Waimama. We had 28 years in dealing with this. And I, my prayers are here. I'm just hoping everybody is going to be safe. The scene where Rose Street disappears into black water is repeated on River Drive and several other streets jutting into the Alafaya from Lithia Pinecrest Road. It's also repeated across the state. The Santa Fe River northwest of Gainesville threatened to close down Interstate 75 just as evacuees from Irma are streaming back home. The Alafaya River has crested at 23 feet and is gradually falling. But that drop is of little consolation to Wendy Zeman. As cicadas struck up a chorus, she pointed to her son's house, where he was busy dumping soggy carpet onto his front porch. I've been out here since I was 11, 30-something years. And this is the third flood I've been through out here. And this is the worst, but you just don't get used to it. It's just, I mean, you know it's coming. You know there's a possibility. You can prepare for it, but then it never sets until afterwards. Still, Zeman says disasters like this seem to bring out the best in people. They've had food brought in from several restaurants, and people from the nearby Fishhawk community donated money, food, and cleaning supplies. Mark Austin, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Ruskin, says the worst flooding usually takes place after storms pass through. It generally does take about 24 to 48 hours, um, so we tend to see a little bit of a lag between that heavy rain and the river flooding, which is you know, contrary to uh, you know, aerial flooding or flash flooding we receive during the heavy rainfall event. Austin says these crests are like large lumbering swells that move slowly downriver, so it can be a week before levels return to normal. When we do have a hurricane approaching or a tropical storm or even just a tropical depression, it doesn't take uh, you know, a powerful hurricane to cause uh, major river flooding concerns. It's really important that people have a predetermined location that they're going to evacuate to if they live close to those rivers and in the flood area. Zeman says people here in the Alafaya aren't about to let a storm like Irma uproot them. But I mean, the people that choose to stay, it's because they've been here so long. It's just their community 
and everybody's family out here. And even though sunny skies have returned, the ground for many residents remains a soggy mess. I'm Steve Newborn in Tampa. And you're listening to After Hurricane Irma from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. While the Alafia River does not drain south, the rain that fell on parts of central and north Florida is making its way into Lake Okeechobee, raising the lake level and returning attention to holding back the water. Jill Roberts of WQCS in Fort Pierce reports. The storm dumped lots of water in the state. According to the National Weather Service in Melbourne, the two-day total in Fort Pierce alone was more than 21 inches. As Irma's rainfall reaches Lake Okeechobee, the increasing level could cause problems with the aging Herbert Hoover Dyke, a 143-mile earthen dam that surrounds the lake, parts of which were built in the late 1940s. Mark Perry, the executive director of the Florida Oceanographic Society in Stewart, says the lake level is already on the rise. We're going to still see that effect for several weeks going forward. And possibly, you know, if the lake rises too high, then, of course, as they've started releases out of Lake Okeechobee to keep it down, uh, because we have other tropical systems perhaps coming and more rain effects. And so the rain is mainly what lasts over time, even though the immediate storm surge flooding is, is past. It'll be a few weeks yet, Perry says, till the water that fell in the north and central parts of the state travels through the Kissimmee River into Lake Okeechobee. Let's look at it this way. One foot on Lake Okeechobee is 152 billion gallons. So take five days at 30 billion gallons a day, you've raised the lake by one foot. And if you're only dropping it by letting out 2 billion gallons a day, you're still going to raise it in about 10 or 12 days. It'll still raise a foot. So it goes from 15 to 16 to maybe even 17 feet. Nearly $900 million has been spent to reinforce the dike beginning in 2001. That work includes installing a partial cutoff wall along the southeast part of the dike and removing and replacing water control structures such as culverts. A Lloyd's of London analysis shows more than 400,000 residents and their homes and businesses would be at risk if the dike were to fail. John Campbell, public affairs specialist with the Army Corps of Engineers in Jacksonville, which maintains the dike and manages the lake, says there was little damage due to Irma's pounding. Just a little bit of minor erosion in in some areas that you would see with uh, any heavy rain event. Uh, The dike is fine. Uh, We are... um, Keeping our eyes on the water levels in the lake, uh, Irma dumped quite a lot of precipitation, not only over the lake, but in the watershed to the north and west of the lake. That water's now starting to uh, find its way into Lake Okeechobee. For that reason, Campbell says, the Army Corps has started releasing water into the St. Lucie River, sending it east. They hope to time these releases to coincide with low tide so flooding doesn't result for residents downstream of the St. Lucie Lock and Dam, west of the Turnpike in Martin County. And the lake has risen considerably. Uh, It started uh, just a little bit uh, under 11 foot. Uh, That's elevation 11 foot on uh, June 1st, and now it's up to 14. And we think it's going to, just from this event alone, it's going to go up to uh, 17 feet or close to it. Uh, which if it got to 17 feet, that would be the highest it's been in over 10 years. Inspections of the dike are currently being done monthly, but Campbell says that will change if the water does indeed continue to rise as expected. 
once we get uh, to elevation 16, then uh, those uh, monthly inspections become weekly. And above 17, uh, yes, we have more concerned, uh, and so we start doing daily inspection. The idea behind the inspection is to identify issues as soon as as early as possible so that we can bring the uh, appropriate resources to bear on any issues we identify, get these little issues fixed before they become big problems. There may be other big problems, says Mark Perry of the Florida Oceanographic Society. Irma's rains decreased the salinity level in the Indian River Lagoon to zero. Lake Okeechobee releases keep those salinity levels from returning to normal. Releases to the east were resumed after Irma passed. We saw immediately uh, on the 10th, as soon as uh, Irma came through, we saw the salinities in the St. Lucie estuary drop from, you know, 6 to 20 parts per thousand down to zero. And they've stayed that way for, for now, you know, five, six, seven days now. But it's going to continue. And if that continues for more than 28 days for oysters or 9 days, 12 days for uh, seagrass habitat, then we're at zero, you know, freshwater conditions, then we're going to see some, some damage to the habitat itself. For each foot the lake rises above 15 feet, the chance of the dike failing increases. Should it ever reach the 21-foot mark, that probability nears 100 percent. Perry says there are mitigation programs in progress to help keep the water from reaching that mark, but they're years from being ready to institute. For now, water releases from the lake are the only option. I'm Jill Roberts in Fort Pierce. After Hurricane Irma is produced by WLRN Public Media in Miami. Reporting came from WGCU Fort Myers, WMFE Orlando, WUSF Tampa, WQCS Fort Pierce, and WJCT Jacksonville. Alicia Zuckerman, Terrence Shepard, Gina Jordan, Wilson Sayre, and Sammy Mack all helped with editing and producing. Peter Meritz is our technical director with engineering help from Doug Peterson and Charles Michaels. John Labonia is the general manager of WLRN Public Media, and I'm Tom Hudson. This special program from Florida Public Radio has been a presentation of WLRN Public Media in Miami. Thanks for listening.